Is Plano's water safe? We take a closer look at the controversy and the person who brought it to light. She just takes one point of view. She's very selective with what the evidence says, and that's, that's dangerous for people looking for unbiased help in knowing how to stay safe. We take you to a little-known museum that chronicles the history of Plano schools, our Plano podcast, Curiosity. And we meet a Plano resident who's sharing a message of thanks from the Netherlands. It's born out of gratitude, and it's become part of the national psyche. Welcome to Plano Podcast, tales of curiosity and character. I'm your host, Tammy Hooker. And I'm producer Mary Jacobs. We're glad you found our little on-air hangout with stories from inside of Plano. And just outside of what you might expect. When you turn on your tap, is the water safe to drink? Many residents began asking that question in February. Then, consumer advocate Aaron Brockovich jumped in, criticizing Plano's water system in a series of posts on Facebook. In response, more than 11,000 people joined a Facebook group, Safer Water North Texas, questioning the safety of our water. Here's their spokesperson at Plano City Council. I'm Jamie Smith-Stevens. Our members from cities across the area who rely on the North Texas Municipal Water District for water have a vast number of complaints related to the water and legitimate health concerns. Based on an informal poll of our members, the number one concern is that is the long-term health effects that might result from using the current water that's coming into our house. The next largest concern is regarding the strong chemical smell. We also have a surprising number of members who have complained about skin issues, including rashes, irritation, and even chemical burns. We have literally been bombarded with questions, concerns, and worries on the state of the water supply. Their concerns prompted some members of the Facebook group to spend $5,000 or more on water filtration systems. Some are so frightened that they plan to move out of town. Here is Plano resident Elizabeth Dequino at a recent Plano City Council meeting with her plea for answers. People are getting really sick. It's an issue that I don't care to see. I love this city. I would really like to see all these people's questions answered. Why are our tax dollars being spent to make people sick? Please give some honest answers to these people. They deserve it. Meanwhile, at the Texas Commission for Environmental Quality, or TCEQ, it's received similar complaints about the water's odor and taste, rashes, hair loss, and diarrhea. So what's going on? We travel to Wiley, home of the North Texas Municipal Water District's treatment plant, to get some answers. My name is Mike Rickman. I'm the deputy director for the North Texas Municipal Water District. The raw water supplies for the district are Lake Lavon, Lake Texoma, Lake Jim Chapman, uh, Lake Tawakany, and we have a wetlands project where we recycle water through it, which is another source. Note that Plano relies on surface water, not groundwater. Those lakes unavoidably collect contaminants like pesticides and dirt from runoff. And in our warm climate, they act like petri dishes for bacteria and other organic matter. That means the water must be cleaned. The treatment process starts with the raw water being pumped into the treatment plant. We add chemicals at the plant, which settles out the, the solids that are in the water. Uh, that goes through one process, and then it is uh, we ozonate 
the water, which is another is a form of disinfection. It's a very strong disinfectant to help remove uh, some of the biological activity in the water. And then it goes through a set of filters, uh, co- uh, anthracite filters, and then it is uh, rechlorinated and ammonia added to form chloramines. And then the water is sent to what's called clear wells or storage, ground storage tanks. And it gets, has detention time in those to allow the chlorine and ammonia to react. And then from that point, it's piped through a network of uh, large diameter pipes to the cities. And then it enters into the city's distribution systems. Most of the year, as Rickman said, the water is treated with chlorine and ammonia, which together form chloramines. But once a year, the district initiates a chlorine burn. That doesn't mean upping the chlorine input, it just means cutting out the ammonia. Without the ammonia, we get that more noticeable chlorine smell. When you go from a chloramine disinfection to a, to a free chlorine disinfection is we just turn the ammonia feed off. We have been doing these chlorine maintenance periods since 2007. It's typically done sometime in the, the winter months because you want to do it during the cold weather. One thing we learned about our trip to Wiley, water treatment is a lot more complex than it looks. You'd assume bottled water is safer, but it's actually less tightly regulated than our tap water. In fact, it usually is tap water. Distilled water is pure, but it's not good for you because it has no minerals. And those test kits that you use to check chlorine levels for your pool? They don't work for tap water. I'm Elizabeth Turner, and I'm a registered environmental manager here at the North Texas Municipal Water District. I would urge caution when using those pull test kits to analyze your water. One is you're getting some pH changes. So there's going to be a different form of chlorine out there, whether it's hypochlorous or hypochlorite that you're getting. And that can make a change with your odor also. Um, I also... When you take a look at those test kits, the ranges that they give are pretty large. So you're looking at a colorimetric test kit, and it could tell you that, okay, if you're this pink color, it could be between 3 and 5 milligrams per liter. Well, how do you really know if it's at the 3, or how do you know it's at the 5? We wondered if the explosion of development in the North Texas area might put some additional stresses on the water system, requiring more chemical disinfectant. Well, it turns out, even with the population and business growth, Plano is using less water overall, thanks to conservation efforts. And the district is working to address the impact of future development. There's nothing on our radar screen that shows that there's any issue with the additional development that's occurring in in the watershed itself. But what we have done is we've established a watershed protection program that we're working with the cities that are located within the watershed to ensure that we continue to maintain the water quality in Levon Lake. My name is Galen Roberts, and I'm the watershed manager here at North Texas Municipal Water District. We have developed a watershed protection plan for for the Levon Lake watershed. We worked uh, in coordination with with the cities uh, in the watershed, with with counties, uh, with the Texas State Soil Water Conservation Board, Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, and the North Central Texas Council of Governments, among a number of other local partners that we engaged with. So that was very much a collaborative process. Uh, That was a voluntary effort. During the period of the chlorine burn, every year the district always receives a few complaints about the chlorine smell. But this year, they've been inundated. Why? We're still looking into that uh, at this point. Uh, we just met with our lab folks uh, earlier today to see if we could start determining what 
if anything, has changed. And since they are the group that looks at the chemistry of the water, uh, sit down with them, and they cannot see anything in our records. And we're going back now and looking 10 years back at all 10 years that we've been doing this to see, okay, is there anything that's changed? What has changed? And so far, we haven't found anything, but we're going to do a deeper dive to see what if there's anything there. One thing that is different this year the arrival of Aaron Brockovich on the scene. And no one seems to be asking, what's her specific expertise? And does she stand to profit somehow from her advocacy, whether with a lawsuit or a book or speaker fees? The movie Aaron Brockovich portrays her as the champion of the little guy in the famous PG&E Chromium 6 case in Hinkley, California. But that's the Hollywood version. We've posted an article entitled The Real Story of Aaron Brockovich by Salon.com on our episode resources. It's a long read, but worth the effort. For perspective on this, we talked to an expert on risk assessment in Massachusetts. My name is David Ropeek. I'm an author and a consultant and a public speaker on the psychology of risk perception, why we worry too much about some things and not enough about others. So what's his take on Aaron Brockovich? She comes in on the white horse. She's got this reputation of being the good guy. She just takes one point of view. She's very selective with what the evidence says. And that's, that's dangerous for people looking for unbiased help in knowing how to stay safe. What matters is she has a record of cherry-picking the facts. So if I'm going to rely on her for facts, I should be wise and careful. Brockovich didn't respond to our queries and for the most part hasn't spoken directly to local media. She also ignored the district's invitation to visit the Wiley plant to see how it operates. That, Ropik says, is a red flag. Meeting with officials, that's really solution-oriented rather than fomenting-oriented, and that fomenting seems to be her stock in trade. Um, so small wonder that she hasn't engaged in that so far, especially if as she has in other cases, she's trying to stir up the idea of a lawsuit. The other side has already been decided in her mind as the bad guys, not people to work with to solve things. It's easy to trust who seems to be on your side, but those people, A, have agendas too, B, tend to see the facts through their own lenses, right, to, to, to prosecute their point of view, and we have to be a little bit more cautious about which basket to put our trust eggs in. And what does Brockovich propose that the water district should do differently? That's not clear. I have read her Facebook post one time, and what I, the, my takeaway from that was is that she doesn't like the district using chloramine as a disinfectant. She thinks that's covering something up, that we should have done a better job of cleansing the water before we chlorinated it. And she also has some criticism of free chlorine, which is what we're using today. So I'm not, and, and those are the only two options you have under the current regulations, and it's probably the two best options you can use. The controversy has spawned incredible distrust among residents. Some assume officials are lying, but take Brockovich's word as gospel. All community water systems in the United States are highly regulated and audited. We can't see how anybody at the water district could possibly profit by, quote, cunning corners. 
And for those who suggest that the city of Plano is somehow in cahoots with the water district, well, that's highly unlikely. Plano's been fighting the district for years over the contract that makes us pay for more water than we use. There's no love lost between those two entities. Here's another comment from a Dallas resident at Plano City Council. It doesn't make any sense that putting toxins in the water is a good idea. It's true that chlorine is toxic, but in very small quantities, it's safe and it's the best way to kill organic contaminants, which can also be very dangerous. Here's longtime resident Sergeant Darnell speaking to Plano City Council. He says that Plano's water has always tasted like chlorine, but that's a good thing that's easily taken for granted. We are fortunate to have a civilized society where we have clean drinking water without having a disease from waterborne parasites, amoebas, bacteria, virus. If you look back at what the CDC has said in the past, He's talking about chlorination here. Is that this is one of the you know, the best things that's happened uh, in the past hundred years with regard to public health because it has stopped waterborne diseases. There's safety and then there's purity. Can't we aim for water that's even more pure with less chemicals rather than just meeting federal guidelines? Here's Jamie Stevens. North Texas is nationally recognized as a top place to live, work, and play and we want it to remain that way. While our water may technically be within legal um, regulations, I think that we can all agree that North Texas strives to be the best in class. That's a fair question. Assuming our water is safe, are there ways to make it even purer? We couldn't find specific proposals from Brockovich, but we did pose the question to the water district. There's numerous methods of cleansing water. Uh, the process that we're using, uh, using a conventional water treatment plant, in addition, we're using ozone as our primary disinfectant. That is something that's above and beyond what is required. The other thing that we are in the process of constructing is we're adding biologically active filtration to our system, which will be using nature to help take additional biological activity out of the water before it's chlorinated and distributed to citizens. So it's, uh, it, can we, could we use other things? There's other things out there. Reverse osmosis, which is another method of cleansing water. And yes, we could do that technologically. It's, you can do it from a, from a perspective of water rates. No, they would not want us to do that. And the example I would use is the largest desalination plant, which is a reverse osmosis plant, is in California. It produces 50 million gallons of water a day. And that plant cost about a billion dollars to construct. The water treatment plant that's behind you is 770 million gallons a day of rated capacity. So you can see it's, it's in terms of expenditures just to put RO in at this plant would be billions of dollars. In other words, we might be able to make our water better, but that might mean higher water bills. As we were in final edit on this podcast, a series of water samples commissioned by the city of Plano showed levels of trihalomethanes above the recommended levels. A brief spike in levels is not good news, but not surprising after a chlorine burn. Additional tests are planned. Could that explain the rashes and other health problems people have experienced? Here's Ropeek's take. So this 
happens in a lot of these communities as well. Everybody with any ailment attaches it to what the current boogeyman is. That's instinctive because, A, they're afraid of the boogeyman, and, B, they want answers for their ailment. That's not to say that the reports of health problems are unrelated. Only a caution about blaming the water without expert medical input. So how to sort all this out? First, understand how fear plays a role in this whole discussion. That things that you can't control yourself, like your water, scare you more than any risk that you think you have some control over. Things that have long chemical names that are therefore hard to, for most of us, and me too, to understand means you don't have the knowledge you need to know how to protect yourself. That's a lack of control, too. That's, that's a different kind of the same thing. When you don't have control, it's scarier. When things come along that are environmental, right? Um, there's been a whole world of stigmatization of industrial chemicals. When I say chlorine, when I say hexafluoro, oh my God, right? It rings alarm bells in us emotionally. Ropik's advice? The district and concerned citizens should collaborate to agree together on a plan for frequent testing of safety as well as purity by a qualified, neutral lab with transparent reporting of the results. That would go a long way to increase consumer confidence. Here's another data point. The district's board of directors includes no women and no persons of color. On the other hand, a large portion of the members of Safer Water North Texas appear to be young mothers. Having more diversity on the district's board might help reduce the communication gap. Finally, the fact that residents are getting involved and asking questions is a good thing, an opportunity for education and community involvement. But the best thing we can do now is stick with the science, focus on facts and solutions. What's going on in Plano has gone on in lots of communities where the initial reaction is quite understandably highly protective, but emotion-based. And what most of those other communities have found, and I pray that Plano finds this sooner rather than later, based on a lot of other communities they can learn from, is after that first wave of fury, people wanting safe water, not just to be, excuse my French, pissed off, right? They want safe water. Calm down, look at the facts, and then get to whatever the facts are. So like in Flint, Michigan, the facts were that the water was really, really bad. It was a way worse case than what's going on in Plano, but they reacted with emotion first and then got thoughtful. That's what Plano has to get to. The emotion always comes first, and that's what we do as humans, but they need to also add in, not stop being emotional, that's who we are. They need to add in thoughtfulness to get to safer water. Are you enjoying this episode of Plano Podcast? If so, you can join our growing list of patrons. Visit planopodcast.com and click on the support tab for more information. Now, back to the show. For our Plano podcast curiosity, we're going to let you in on a little secret. Until 1950, the halls of the Cox Building were filled with the sounds of school children. Plano students from grades 1 through 12 attended school there. Now, the building is home to Plano ISD administration and has a theater in the basement. But near the front entrance, you'll find the historic classroom, a tiny museum 
chronicling the history of the Plano school system. All of the items were donated by students and families from Plano ISD, and they date back to the 1900s. There's a nifty collection of old school desks. You'll probably recognize one from your school days. Also on display, vintage uniforms of the Planoet drill team, band and cheerleader squad, plus a varsity letter jacket. Then there's this. That puppet is scary because it's like, it's a clown puppet. Yeah, it looks, it looks like a scary homemade yeah. kind of a clown thing. Threat. <laughs> it's a clown threat. Yeah. And a wooden paddle with several names etched on it. I don't know if you got, you know, like a certain enough number of paddles you got to put your name on it. Or maybe you just got your hands on it when the principal wasn't looking. Our favorite memento, a mechanical calculator, somewhat like an abacus, with a price tag from Woolworths still attached. Price, $1. You can visit the historic classroom during business hours at the Cox Building, corner of 16th Street and Avenue K. Next, meet our Plano podcast character. Hi, I'm Bart Kohnhorst. I've been a Plano resident for about uh, 19 years. Bart was born in the Netherlands, and his parents live in a town there with a special connection to the United States, and a name I won't even try to pronounce. Margaten, as we say it, is actually in the southernmost part of the Netherlands. It was uh, the scene of proximity close to where a lot of the major battles happened in the Second World War as the uh, area was being liberated from the Nazis. There's a, uh, an amazing uh, area there that's on the National Register of Monuments, and it is a World War II gravesite. It's a place where many of the soldiers that were fallen in the um, uh, Operation Market Garden, the famous Arnhem Bridge Too Far, and that whole area were uh, buried. 8,301 fallen American soldiers are buried. At one point, there were more than 17,000 Americans there, but many were repatriated. You know, when, when my parents first moved out there, I got exposed firsthand to that to that site, and I saw amazing things. I saw how the population around there considered it a hallowed site. Ever since 1946, every single one of the graves in that cemetery have been adopted by a local person. And there is a waiting list to adopt the graves of over 100 people. And these are people of all generations and all ages. It's a very, very powerful and, you know, organic love for the liberators. Families that adopt grave sites bring flowers to the graves on birthdays or special occasions. About 60% have established ties with the soldiers' families in the United States, and many have pictures of the soldiers in their homes. For Bart, the connection is personal. My grandmother was Jewish, and her entire family was wiped out by the Nazis. My mother uh, was uh, in the resistance during the Second World War as a young teenage woman. Uh, and when the war ended, she was 18. They um, had networks that were bringing um, uh, you know, pilots that had been shot down back through the lines, back to be able to go over to England, for example. But she also transported cases of money to fund the on the back of her bike to fund 
the uh, resistance effort and uh, went through and had a close shave going through a German checkpoint at, at one point, which is a whole other story. During the final part of the Second World War um, in the Netherlands, there was what was known as the Hunger Winter from 44 to 45. And in the area of Utrecht, Amsterdam, The Hague, um, uh, you know, that, that sort of area there, over 20,000 people died of hunger. And uh, she was in that. She played games with her sisters because they had a pot on the fire in the house and they tried to play games to see who could still lift the pot because they were so weak with extended bellies and eating tulip bulbs, which are poisonous if you eat too many of them. So it's harsh. The dedication of the Dutch people hasn't faded over time. Several years ago, a Dutch teenager started a project to collect photos of the fallen soldiers. Some 5,000 pictures have been collected, but about 3,000 are still sought. To help support the project, Bart recently spoke to the Dallas chapter of the Jewish War Veterans. One of the reasons I wanted to speak at the Jewish War Veterans Association is that um, I wanted to try help to get pictures of fallen soldiers. And so I wanted to tell the story of the love that is there for America and the liberators and, and that, that engagement, but also a call to action to let's find these pictures, let's connect. And we, after that um, uh, talk that I did there, I was con uh, contacted by um, a couple of people and they highlighted to me a great story. There was a, um, they had found the name of one of the um, fallen Texas soldiers um, and had found that some pictures had been uh, stored in a box which was stored in the Dallas Library. So we were able to contact the Dallas Library and they gave us a additional copy of a picture that is now stored in that particular uh, uh, data vault, if you like, in that information area, which you can see, go see on the web. Every two years, Margraten hosts a commemoration. This May, the photos of those fallen soldiers from Texas and across the United States will be displayed alongside each grave. They'll be part of that ceremony. Not every picture is put out. But we're looking, this is a call to action to everybody, we're looking for more pictures. There are plenty of soldiers, over 3,000 soldiers out there that do not have their picture yet. And we, we want to reach out to America and we want to reach out to uh, everybody that has a relationship to this, that they can go online and see which pictures are missing and connect us with, if possible, with those families. Many photos are still sought including a number from Texas. Bart hopes to speak to more local groups to get the word out to help find their photos, too. This story of, you know, this appreciation for the two countries that, I, that are closest to me is something that I'd love to tell more. I was raised from, you know, from when I remember of these amazing stories of my parents during the war. And everybody in the Netherlands talks about the war, right? But uh, uh, it's, it's still ingrained and very much part of the conversations. Something's happened in, in the United States where we forget and don't understand. And I'm an American now, by the way. We, we forget and don't understand the, the appreciation for what these, these liberators has, have done and the, the love for America on behalf of everybody over there. Thank you, America. 
thank you, Bart, for bringing this heartwarming story to North Texas. Thank you for listening to this episode of Plano Podcast. And now in Dutch. Hoi allemaal, hier zijn we op de Plano Podcast. We've reached the end of another edition of Plano Podcast. Tales of curiosity and character. We hope you've enjoyed today's topics and discussion. Remember to support us on Patreon and to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Send your feedback, ideas, and comments our way. Thanks for listening and subscribing. We'll be waiting for you at our back corner booth. Until next time.